Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Truth and Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld. And Dr. Newfeld is going to be taking us into an interesting subject today, and I think one that's controversial for many, but that's the idea of why is the Bible made up of the books of the Bible that it is? John, why the 66 books? Yeah, why 66? Why not 67 or 92, right? Yeah, yeah. And behind that is always this question about are we deliberately keeping other stuff out? You know, is yeah. this... You know, and so the idea of other teachings about Jesus and so forth. There's some type of conspiracy going on. Yeah. 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 Well, we're looking forward to that, and we'll join Dr. John Newfeld right now, right here on Truth and Life Today. You know, there's a lot of misinformation out there about the Bible. You know, I was recently privy to a, a conversation in a restaurant in which I could see one guy was a Christian, the other guy was a critic. Uh, and the critic was telling the Christian, do you know that there are a lot of other stories out there about Jesus that are not found in your Bible? And he mentioned the Gospel of Thomas. He could have mentioned the Gospel of Mary Magdalene or the Gospel of Judas or a number of other things. And so the idea behind that conversation is, you know, stuff has been kept from you that you don't find in your Bible. You've been kept in the dark. Now, I had a conversation very much like that. It was also at a restaurant. I had my Bible in front of me, my laptop. I was working away, and, and a guy came up to me. He looked to be in his early 80s, and uh, he said to me, I used to be a Baptist. And I said, oh. And he said, uh, I found out that Jesus was married. Did you know that? And I said, well, tell me why you think that's true. And he said, I've done my research. You know, behind all of those kind of stories is that idea that maybe, just maybe, those of us who believe that the 66 books that make up our Bible are somehow insufficient, that, that you know, there was a group of people in a, in a smoke-filled back room somewhere, and they decided what was in and what was out, and, and they kept all of this juicy, good stuff away from us. I had another conversation with somebody who said, did you know that Jesus went to India and that he was trained by some of the gurus there? And I asked him how he knew that, and he told me as well that he had done his research. So I don't know the research that these individuals have done, but I've done a lot of reading in this regard, and I can tell you with absolute assurance that the way in which our Bible came together was not in a smoke-filled back room in which a number of power players made a decision about what's in and what's out. Let me help explain that for just a moment. We know that probably the first words that were ever written, words of God, would have been written somewhere around 1445 BC. Why do I say that? Well, we know from a number of historical records that Israel came out of Egypt in the year 1446 BC, and they journeyed to the foot of Mount Sinai. There at Mount Sinai, they gather in, in the desert, and God actually speaks to them, and they receive the Ten Commandments, and the words of God are written on two stone tablets. Now, of course, after that, we know that, well, for instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 31, we have that the first five books that make up our Bible, it says that Moses wrote down the words of this law. So in other words, God gives the Ten Commandments, and Moses expands on what God has said, and that forms the first five books of our Bible. Well, what's interesting about those first five books of the Bible is that when you go to the, the very next book, which is the book of Joshua, and I'm reading here in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8, listen to these words. It says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. 
So I want you to understand the context. When those words were written, Moses had just died. Hadn't been dead very long, and Israel was gathered together, and they had received a new leader. His name is Joshua. And Joshua's first words to the people of God were this, make sure that you meditate on the law of God and do everything that is written in it. It is the law of God. In other words, it wasn't that they had a committee meeting and decided that those first five books should be a part of the Bible. Those five books had been written by a man named Moses, whom everybody knew was accredited as a prophet of God. Now, why is that so important? Well, they knew that Moses was a prophet of God because Moses had told them that God had spoken to him at a burning bush, but they also knew that Moses had shown up in Egypt and that through his hand, a number of amazing miracles had been done, so much so that the power of the greatest nation on earth at that time, Egypt, was utterly decimated by God. Then Moses led them to the, uh, to the Red Sea and stretched out his hand and divided the Red Sea. They were allowed to walk through on dry ground. And there are a number of other times where God personally met with Moses and spoke to them so that everyone in the community came to recognize this man was an attested servant of God. So that when he died and left behind the writings that he left behind, everyone knew that they came from someone who was a prophet of God. So you see, they didn't get together and have a meeting in a back room somewhere. It was done in the open. What's also fascinating is that when Joshua dies, and we read about this in Joshua 24, verse 26. Remember, Joshua is the man who came after Moses, the next leader. And it says, Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. In other words, the book of Joshua, which was written by Joshua, was also called the book of the law of God. And so it was added because Joshua was also attested to be a servant of God. After all, Joshua brought them not to the Red Sea, but to the River Jordan, stretched out his hand. And just like Moses, the waters parted. He took them through on dry ground. And then God did considerable miracles to attest before the, pe the people that Joshua was the servant of God. Well, we can go through the rest of the Old Testament exactly in that way. You know, there are a number of prophets in the Old Testament. For instance, let me give you Jeremiah as an example. Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord, in just a little while, the Babylonians will come and burn Jerusalem to the ground and destroy the temple. Then Israel will go into captivity for 70 years, and after the 70 years, they will be released. Well, those words came about exactly as Jeremiah had said. People came to realize that this man was an attested prophet of God. And so his words were recorded and also included among those materials that made up the written word of God. What I'm trying to say is simply this. It's not as if the Old Testament was put together in some kind of a committee. It was actually put together in a living drama and it came through organically so that by the time of Jesus, Jesus affirms that the 39 books that make up the Old Testament are the scripture. All the Jews understood that that was the scripture of God and Jesus said so as well. That's how we got the first 39. I have a lot more to say about what we find in the New Testament.
You know, there's a huge debate about, and the debate goes something like this. How do we know for certain that the writings that we have, let's say in the Old Testament, are in fact authentic writings? If you don't know about this debate, let me tell it to you, and, and, and let me give you a little bit of a warning. Uh, for those of you who don't know the debate, you might wonder why I'm even bringing it up. And for those of you who know the debate, you might be wondering why I don't go into it in more depth. And so I'm afraid I'm going to disappoint both groups of people, but let me give it a shot. See, here's what we know for certain. Moses is said to have written the first five books of our Bible. Well, we know that Jesus thought so. Find that in Mark 7, verse 10, Luke 20, verse 37. Whenever Jesus quotes from those words, he calls it Moses. So he believed that Moses was the author. We also know that Paul in the New Testament thought so. It says so in Romans 10, verse 5. The New Testament assumes that the Old Testament is a legitimate document. But somewhere in the end of the 19th century, a group of scholars formed the beginning of a new movement that came to be known as the liberal movement. It started this way. A group of scholars noticed that in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, the name of God is talked about differently. Genesis 1 calls him God. Genesis 2 calls him the Lord God. And these scholars said, well, maybe, just maybe, there were two different writers that were putting this together. And to make a long story short, a group of scholars began to say, well, you know what? Maybe the Old Testament is put together through a series of editions. You know, it got edited and then it got edited again. And then somebody else with a, a different set of theological eyes went through it and made some mis uh, corrections from mistakes that were made earlier and so forth. And so that a great deal of people have come to believe that the Bible is not an authentic document at all. What do we say in response? I think the response is simply this. When someone makes a charge that this is an inauthentic document, it's always wise to ask, where do you get your information from? Those initial scholars in the end of the 19th century, who began the liberal movement, had actually argued that at the time of Moses, writing hadn't even been invented. But what they didn't know is that in just a few years, the Rosetta Stone would be discovered, and we find out that writing had been invented at least 500 years before Moses and longer after that. Everyone knew how to write in Moses' day, so that is just patently untrue. And furthermore, all the archaeological finds that we have have done nothing but substantiate the documents that we actually have. What I mean to say is that the most marvelous thing in the world has occurred. Archaeology, the discovery of source documents, ancient manuscripts being found, every single one of them tell us that we can trust the gospel that we have. Well, let's come to the New Testament because this is where all the action is. Remember, I, I started this program by, by talking about those people that said, did you know that there were other stories about Jesus? And what do we make about that? Well, as a matter of fact, there are. There's the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, and so forth. And, and what's interesting about some of them is that they really do say some outrageous things. In the Gospel of Thomas, we're told that if anyone truly converts, God will change a woman into a man because it's inappropriate for a woman to have eternal life. Well, Jesus never said that, but the Gospel of Thomas does. So when I talk to people that say, well, did you know there are other stories? I'll say, you bet there are. And they say some of the most outrageous things. I wonder if you believe that. But furthermore, 
All of those other documents about the life of Jesus were written hundreds of years after Jesus. Whereas the documents that we have in our Bible are written by eyewitnesses who were there when Jesus said the things that he said. And furthermore, we also know that at the time in which those other gospels were written, there was a new philosophy about. It was called a philosophy called Gnosticism, and this was an attempt to reinterpret Jesus in the light of a new emerging Greek philosophy. So let me give you an example. Imagine that you're reading a book called Abraham Lincoln Vampire Slayer, and you just pick that up and you say to somebody who's been studying the life of Abraham Lincoln, you know, there's a lot of stories about Abraham Lincoln that you don't know about. In fact, he used to slay vampires. And when the person says to you, well, I think that's all nonsense, you say, I've done my research. Here's the truth. Anyone who does historical research considers eyewitness testimony to be far superior to that which came hundreds of years later. That's what we have in our Bible. We have eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus. Matthew was called by Jesus and actually was a scribe who probably took notes of everything that Jesus did. Uh, Mark wrote his gospel overseen by Peter. And then, of course, we have Luke, who actually interviewed every single one of the followers of Jesus. And then we have John, the longest surviving of the disciples, who actually wrote an account as well. In short, what we actually have are people who were on the ground who watched it happen. And that's why we hold those four documents and not more. These are the only four eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus, and we are right and legitimate in saying that we put precedence on those. These tell us the truth of Jesus because the men who recorded it were actually there. Every once in a while, I'll uh, talk to someone who says, you know, I'm only interested in the words of Jesus. I don't want to know about the rest of the Bible. I mean, it's Jesus that's the center and the rest doesn't matter. And so we'll often hear people saying, yeah, that was only said by Paul and it doesn't matter as much as what was said by Jesus. You know, I always respond to that and say, did you know that Jesus didn't write one single word that's actually found in our Bible? The eyewitnesses who wrote down the words of Jesus were eyewitnesses Jesus didn't write them. And by the way, I think that's great. Here's why. If Jesus actually did write the words of the Bible, if he actually wrote them down himself, well, we would have done exactly what people are doing today, saying, you know, I only pay attention to what Jesus said and not everybody else. But as a matter of fact, all 66 books that make up our Bible are the Word of God, and God has assured for us that we can trust this Word. But let's get back to Jesus. You know, it's interesting because in John chapter 14, and I'm reading verse 26, listen to these words. He's talking to his disciples. He says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. The problem that many of us have is that we too quickly apply a passage of Scripture to ourselves without understanding the context in which they were given. 
Jesus is actually speaking to the 12 that he has chosen as apostles. You know the story. Uh, Jesus went about and he chose 12 men who were to be eyewitnesses of what he was doing, who were to be with him, and who were to be personally trained by him. And then as he's getting towards the end of his life and he tells them that he's going to die and be raised and he'll be taken up into heaven and he's going to leave them, he gives them a promise. He says, after I'm gone, the Holy Spirit will come, and he's speaking to the 12, and he says to them, they, that Holy Spirit will help you to remember accurately everything that I've taught. You know, what's fascinating also is that Jesus restates that two chapters later, and here I'm reading from John 16, and I'm reading verses 13 and 14. He says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you, that is the twelve, the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so that's the promise that Jesus gave to those twelve. When you set about to tell other people what happened while I was on the earth, you'll have the benefit of the Holy Spirit who will inform you and keep you on the ball. So you won't make up stories about me. You'll keep centered on what the thing I actually said. Now that's essential to understanding the New Testament. You know that Jesus chose 12 apostles, and those 12 apostles were not only eyewitnesses, but were trained by him. What's also fascinating is because you know that the rest of our New Testament, we have a number of books that were written by the apostle Paul, who's also called an apostle. And the reason for that is because, according to Paul's own words, that Jesus not only met him on the road to Damascus, but that Paul went out to Arabia. Read about that in Galatians chapter 1. He was there for three years, and the risen Jesus appeared to him and instructed him also. In fact, in that regard, we can find out that Paul says, for instance, 1 Corinthians 9, he says, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? In other words, my claim to apostleship is I also was personally trained and instructed by Jesus to write the very things that I've written. See, here's what we say about the New Testament. It was written by those people who were specifically chosen by Jesus himself to not only write about what he did and about what he said, but to also write about the implications and to make application to our lives about the truths that he declared. See, that's all that the New Testament is. The reason we have 27 books in our New Testament is because those 27 books are written by either the apostles or the prophets and no one else. See, the apostles were the eyewitnesses of Jesus, and the prophets were a group of people who were directly overseen by the apostles. So, for instance, we have the first book in the New Testament, which is the book of Matthew. Matthew was one of the disciples. He followed Jesus, was the eyewitness of what he did. The next book we have is Mark, and he's not one of the apostles, but we know from history, from that early church father by the name of Papias, who tells us, that Mark wrote under the direct supervision of Peter, who watched what he wrote and made sure that it was accurate. We know that the next book is Luke, and he's also not an apostle, but we know that he was directly accountable to Paul. 
And then we come to John, and he's one of the apostles again. You see, that's what we're trying to say. The New Testament was written either by direct eyewitnesses or those individuals who were directly counseled and edited and watched by the apostles themselves. No other book made it into our New Testament other than that. See, the reason why we exclude other books is because they're not eyewitnesses. The reason we exclude them is because Christ didn't choose them to write about him. And the reason we don't have the Gospel of Mary Magdalene is not only that it's a fraud because Mary Magdalene didn't write the book. It was written hundreds of years after Mary was dead, but it was also not written by a person appointed by Jesus himself. See, think about it this way. You know, let's say that, you know, you're getting old in years and, uh, and you're about to die and you instruct your kids. Hey, I want you to make sure that you write down a couple of things that are very important to me. Make sure that it gets said. But then 100 years from now, somebody else writes something. Would you consider that to be a fraud? Of course we would. The reason why we have the Bible that we do is because every portion of the Bible rings true. It is authentic. It's not a fraud. It didn't get added later. It's not a philosophy that somebody wanted to convey. It's given by people who saw God at work and wrote about what they saw. Our Bible is an authentic document. You can trust it. You can hold it in your hand and you can say to somebody who says, hey, but didn't they say something else about Jesus? And we can always say, who is it that said that? What is it precisely that they said? Is there any corroborating historical documentation that would lend credence to what was said? And in every case, we come back to this conclusion. You can trust your Bible. It's the Word of God. It is authentic and it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. What a ringing endorsement of that which is true. Well, welcome back to Truth and Life today, and I hope you enjoyed uh, Dr. Neufeld's message about the 66 books of the Bible. Uh, John, why has this become seemingly more controversial today? Well, you know, it was a number of years ago now that Dan Brown came out with his book, The Da Vinci Code, and even though a number of people haven't read it, I mean, there remains in a lot of people's minds this idea, there's a conspiracy somewhere in putting out the Bible. And of course, you know, Dan Brown's book is just filled with historical inaccuracies. I read through the whole thing, and uh, I was amazed at, you know, he just can't defend any of that stuff. And when he's been asked to do that, he says, well, it's just a novel. But then we turn around right away and act as if it's truth, right? So I think people need to get an answer for the hope that lies within us. Well, why is the Bible good? So, I mean, all these things are happening all the time. We're hearing these conspiracy theories. How do we protect ourselves from these things? Well, I think, uh, I, I think it's okay to talk about them, um, okay. but I think we need to help people to know where are the legitimate sources that you can go to. So, you know, I mean, don't go to conspiracy theorists, but find out, you know, how the Bible actually came together, why are those books there, and find out that we're, we actually have nothing to hide. And when the church actually said, you know, these are the books, it's not as if they, you know, decided this in some back room somewhere. They just simply looked at what everyone else had come to realize this is the Word of God. 
Thanks so much, John. Thanks for your message today. And remember to join us again next week on Truth and Life Today as Dr. Neufeld completes his series celebrating the Word right here on Truth and Life Today. 